0: Welcome to the ATP podcast at the end of another historic Wimbledon. We're getting used to new chapters of tennis's history being written at pretty much every Grand Slam tournament that takes place at the moment. I'm Chris Bowers and joining me in the grounds of the All England Lawn Tennis Club as the dust settles on another memorable fortnight are the former WTA players Jill Krabus and Lucy Arle. We'll be joined later by Peter Mercado, but first, hola to both of you. It's a very Spanish night following Carlos Alcaraz's five-sets win over Novak Djokovic to win his first Wimbledon and second major, denying Djokovic an eighth Wimbledon and 24th major. What a match it was.
1: Yeah, an absolute inc- incredible match. And I think once we thought it was going to go the distance, you always sort of give the edge to Djokovic because he so often comes through in those moments. But you got to give huge credit um, to Alcaraz. There was a moment where I think, you know, it always comes down to one shot here or there that can make the difference in these matches. And there was a moment Djokovic had the advantage, missed one shot. The, and I f- The drive volley the forehand, volley in the, Into the net, yeah. And yeah. it shocked everybody. It shocked him, too. But Alcaraz, I mean, huge credit. He, he took it by the reins from that point. He just didn't let up, and he served so well. And even Djokovic said afterward, he's like, you know, credit to you because in those moments, he, you know players get nervous. But he served incredibly well and, and took his chance, took the risk. He was so brave in the end, and I just I just thought it was a phenomenal match.
2: Yeah, I mean, I agree that that break point was massive. I also think in the second set tie break where Djokovic... You know, you presumed, I think he'd not lost one for 15, 15 tie breaks he'd won at a slam. And I didn't expect him to lose that. He missed a couple of backhands, didn't he? Three
0: unforced errors. He was three love up he then had his serve at 3-2 and played a backhand drop shot that landed in the net and then he missed a backhand on the baseline without having to move for it so a genuinely unforced error on set point at 6-5 and then he missed the next one from the other end to give Alcaraz the set point that gave him the set
2: That's right and then he served and volleyed and and got past and that was a real shock and obviously quite a big turning point and Alcaraz almost said after he lost that first set that he needed to find something just to give the the crowd something decent to watch and how it then turned. You
0: see, I said at the start of the tournament, this is going to be a repeat of 2006 where we expected Federer to win and we weren't sure if Nadal was ready. Federer does win, but Nadal gets to the final and pushes Federer pretty well. And in that final, it was first set six love to Federer because Nadal was still getting used to a Wimbledon final. I saw Alcaraz in the warm-up. He was so nervous. He was missing all sorts of balls that you never miss in a warm-up. And I thought, uh-oh, this could be 6-love. And it almost was. It was 6-1. But for him to regroup in the second set was very, very impressive. And while we can look at the tie-break as the, the first of the big turning points in the match, the fact that Alcaraz was even in the tie-break, I thought he had to break serve once, otherwise he was done for.
2: I mean if he'd gone two sets to love down then I I can't see Alcaraz winning that match I, I can't see Djokovic losing it I, until Alcaraz actually won it I still felt that Djokovic is probably going to come back because we've seen that happen so often I was really impressed with that final game, having lost the opening point. He then played an unbelievable point with the drop shot lob and then a, a ridiculous drop volley. And, I mean, he went for it and didn't want to leave it to, to chance and he played a brilliant game. It's interesting you say that the uh, match would probably have gone to Djokovic
0: had it been two sets to love. And yet, after that very long game, was it 26 minutes, uh, 13 deuces, uh, Alcaraz gets the double break on his seventh break point to go 4-1 up in the third set. Djokovic almost then concedes the set. And early in the fourth, I was thinking, oh my goodness, Djokovic is barely going to get another game in this. He looked down and out, but he found a way of switching the momentum to the point where he should really have won it.
1: Yeah, it, I think it's, a little, it's crazy that he did that in the, in the third set because you you get to this stage where you're just like, do you really want to do that? because For, for numerous reasons, in my opinion. One, can you switch back to your good form which, of course, he's, he's proven himself that he can do that but you still can get into this phase where these matches can come down to fourth, fourth or fifth sets where it's one or two points and sometimes it can take you a while to switch back into, into good form but um, and, he, and, he's, and he did that. He was able to do that. So that shows you a really deep level of confidence in Djokovic and how he's able to come back in that fourth and just knowing he might come through. And so that sort of gave you the indication going into the fifth. I'm like, oh, okay, like you just your mind automatically goes to Djokovic. But that's what's so impressive about Alcaraz because so many players go to that moment where you're like, I, you think about who you're playing. He's done this over and over again. And so to come through in that final game, like Lucy said, but also have that mental capacity so to almost not let that get in your way, I think that is so huge for someone so young.
0: I was expecting Djokovic to win in five simply on the basis that in the early part of his career, he played a lot more five-setters. There was Davis Cup in those days playing a best-of-five. Players don't play best-of-five these days other than in slams. So for Alcaraz to come back from that... Surge back. You could sense the surge was going to come in about the fourth or fifth game of the fourth set. Djokovic gets back into it. And then second game of the fifth set, he has those break points and the long rally takes the ball out of the air. I'm surprised he didn't smash it, but he took it on a drive volley, put it into the net, and the whole thing turned.
1: Well, he has an incredible five-set record, actually, Alcaraz. He's 9 for 10. He was 8 for 9 going into this match. Now he's 9 for 10. I mean, that's incredible for someone 20 years old to be I mean we know he has the physicality okay he's young but mentally I think that that probably gave him a little bit extra strength no matter who he was playing I mean it's tougher against Djokovic but I I definitely feel like that I don't know if he relied on that or went back to that in his mind but you got to know that probably gives you confidence to go that length
2: yeah absolutely I I think um I think he thought that he was going to turn it around and come through and I mean I guess we've got to mention there did seem to be an issue with the left leg there was tape on the back he was constantly hitting the front of it and then when he got the the warning when he smashed his racket on the net post that that certainly seemed to affect his wrist yeah that was after he'd uh, lost the uh, lost serve
0: in the fifth set to me though it didn't seem to affect his movements. Uh, and, and for much of the match, he returned beautifully. I thought we would be actually saying at the end of the day, he just had better returns than Alcaraz. But actually, his returns weren't so good in the fifth.
2: No, they weren't. And I mean, I was just referencing it because it it, it did seem to be an issue at some point. But then there was a turn and he, would, he was moving great. There was definitely a problem with the wrist in that next game. he He struggled to return with his forehand. And then the first point, with the serve as well but that seemed to wear off but I mean that could have caused him some serious damage.
0: Well yes he's got a few weeks to recover before the American hard court so let's just have a look at the two players where has this left let's start with the champion Where's this left Alcaraz?
2: I mean I think you know the sky's the limit isn't it he's quite quickly understood how to perform on grass he's Learned from what happened at Roland Garros against Djokovic and the fact that the occasion got too much for him and he cramped and you know that he, he couldn't really continue to anywhere near the level that he was playing. And yeah, this is going to give him even more confidence and belief. And as Djokovic said, I thought you'd be a problem for me on clay and hard, but now it looks like grass is going to be an issue as well.
1: Well, I just think he's one we've talked about how versatile he is he's just for someone so young just the all-complete player that he is and we we see brilliance from him almost every match how much he's capable of how much he's able to do and you sort of wonder like how he can get better from here because he already has so many tools um and I think also what Lucy said just to add to it how much he is willing to adapt and learn, but how quickly it happens. We talk so, so many players talk so much about like, okay, I got to be willing to have that progress. And normally it comes slowly, but for Alcaraz, it comes so fast. And not only learning from Roland Garros semifinal, where he said the nerves overcame him. I mean, we're only a month later than that. That is very quick. And also it happened before he won the U.S. Open. He went into the Masters 1000 tournament in Canada as the number one seed. It was the first time he was ever the number one seed. And he's like, that was too much for me. Like, it made me so nervous. And he went out early in that mat, in that tournament and then all of a sudden turned around he's winning the US Open. I mean, those are two very, very quick examples. And it's just incredible how capable he is of adapting so quickly.
0: And where does this leave Djokovic?
1: Djokovic, I think, is going to be fine. I mean, I think this is the second time, right, he's gone for the calendar Grand Slam and hasn't been able to get it but he faced someone that was just played outstanding today I think I mean there were ups and downs in the matches which is not that surprising considering it was almost five hours long you're going to have ups and downs but I I mean he's one of the best and he knows it and he nothing stops him from being motivated to get more of those records that he already has or to add to all those records that he already has so I think he's just going to be as motivated as as anybody
0: well, last time he was in New York for the US Open, it was two years ago when he was going for the Grand Slam and probably felt the pressure in the final against Medvedev. I wonder, Lucy, whether this will free him up, the fact that the Grand Slam is off the table now.
2: Yeah, that's a good point, Chris. I think potentially it might. It would have been interesting had he been going for it. I, again, I think he would have learnt from what happened last time. I think it will be interesting. I think this will hurt quite a lot. I I think he really felt that this was his particularly on the grass he's enjoyed the fact that a lot of the players now are saying we well, not really sure how to play on grass I haven't got a, a lot of experience and he's going well I have and I think yeah I mean I I didn't think he'd lose I don't think he certainly did and maybe was surprised at, at what Alcaraz was capable of. So where does this leave
0: the top of men's tennis? I mean my my feeling is that it's Alcaraz, Djokovic, and then a big gap to the rest. But maybe that's being disrespectful to other players.
1: I think there's quite a few actually. I'm, I I think I'm very, I'm very excited about the men's game, I and mean, you have there's been talks about the rivalries with Alcaraz and Sinner, and Alcaraz and Runa's coming up, and then you have Rublev, and there's so many that are capable. There's still Sitsipasvarev, you know. There's a lot that are there that I think have big games to do it to me it comes down to that mentality and that's what's so, been so impressive about Alcaraz is that mentality and so I, I think the fact that Alcaraz won this championship might give a little spark and insight to the other ones that say that it's there's an opening there that yes it can be done because I think before a lot of players didn't think it could be done um, but I mean, that's why we're so impressed with like a uh, mevedev Dominic team, um, Chilich that came through Del Potro. I'm gonna I'm gonna miss someone for sure, but those ones that came through during the big three four, right? But so this is just another little opening for those guys to maybe make that extra push, and I think there are a lot of guys on the tour that have the game to do it.
0: Well, we'll come back to some of the other names in men's tennis a little later in the podcast, but let's just chat briefly about the women's tournament because. Everyone said, well, it was going to be one of Sabalenka, Shiontek or uh, Rebakina," And it was none of them. None of them got to the final. Um, we had Marketa von Drusova, who I don't think many people would have picked. First ever unseeded champion. And yet it slightly killed off the story everyone was preparing for, which was the first African Arab champion. I
2: know, a, re- a real shock, wasn't it? And I mean full credit to Von Drusseva I mean she's obviously had a final before at Roland Garris and we maybe underestimated the fact that she learned a lot from that match she lost to Barty easily also final of the Olympics certainly from my perspective and I think a lot of people felt that Jabir was the big favourite and the fact that she'd had that experience last year that was going to get her over the line And, and the way that she got through the quarterfinal against Rubikina and Sabalenka when she was down but she got tied, it got into her head and she couldn't cope with it again. And a, a real blow for her. I mean, she was so emotional after. But I, I still think that Von Drusova, with the way she played and Joubert talked about that, that you know, it was a slower ball coming at her, there was more variety rather than the big hitting Sabalenka or Rubikina and that threw her and she overpressed, there were a lot of unforced errors. And full credit to Von Drusova, I think, because she played a big part in that. I know Jaber did, you know, not handle the pressure, but the, the Czech player was, was brilliant, I think, all fortnight.
0: And Jill, I feel that the one good thing to come out of that is that it's an example to people, whatever level of tennis you play at, there are days when you go out there and you just suddenly can't play the game that you know you normally can. And that's what happened to Jaber.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of it was about the moment, and I agree with Lucy. I think you have to give huge credit for Von Drusova because the the moment was on both of their shoulders, right? I think I Jaber think knew, definitely knew a little bit that she was probably favored in that match, um, having been to the final here before, even though Von Drusova was in the final of the French Open. But... I, I agree. I just felt like if you looked at both of their de- demeanors on the court, Vondrusova was just able to carry herself a little bit better. And even as the match went, match went on, Vondrusova got more confident and more confident. And she looked so focused. She wasn't looking up at her team or box at all where Jabir had slightly worried look on her face throughout that entire match. And that's what I think was concerning. And that's because she knew she wasn't feeling 100%. But a lot I agree with Lucy. A lot of it had to do with Vondrusova. She just handled that moment better and just I played a really solid match, like a really smart. I think she's a very smart, intelligent player. And she knew exactly how to you know, disrupt that rhythm of Jabir.
0: Well, we'll come to the doubles a little bit later, except I would like to ask Lucy one thing. Neil Skupski and Wes Koolhoff won the men's doubles. It's a British champion. Skupski She's now won the mixed and the men's doubles. You're embedded in British tennis. How much of a boost to the nation that has this amazingly prestigious tournament is it to have a men's doubles champion?
2: A massive boost. I mean, it, it hasn't happened for a while, and, and what Neil did was was incredible. It, that also hadn't happened for a while. The fact that he, he's got won two titles, winning the mixed here, and I mean, you know, full credit to both of them. It's their first Grand Slam title together. Obviously, seeded one here. They did make the final of the U.S. Open last year. It was a brilliant lead-up in terms of the amount of matches they got on grass winning in St and the semi-finals of Queen's. But for British tennis, because in the singles, we probably were a little disappointed. The other good news is that we had a, a junior winner as well. And also in the under 14 event, um, well, Mark Seban won, won that. That's a, a relatively new event. Um, and we had a, a junior winner in, in the boys, Henry Searle, who played a brilliant match, he's got a a great game, he's got a big game, big serve, big forehand and came through some tough moments so for British tennis particularly here at at Wimbledon that was a, a massive boost.
0: Well Neil Skupsky has added the men's doubles to the mix. He's won twice in the past. Whereas for Mate Pavic, it was the reverse. The men's doubles champion from two years ago is now the mixed champion, partnering Ukraine's Ludmilla Kichenok. And the remarkable 37-year-old Taiwanese wei Shea has followed up her Roland Garros women's doubles title with the Wimbledon title, this time with a different partner, the revived Barbara Streetsiver, who's also 37. That's a remarkable story, especially given Shay's unorthodox playing style. Others on the Grand Slam Roll of honour include the boy we were just talking about, Henry Searle, who won the Boys' Singles Championship, Jakub Philipp and Gabriele Vulpita in the Boys' Doubles, Tokito Oda in the Wheelchair Men's Singles and Alfie Hewitt and Gordon Reid in the Wheelchair Men's Doubles. All of them Wimbledon champions. Coming up next, we'll take a look at the whole Wimbledon fortnight and work out how the tennis world stands after the third Grand Slam tournament of the year.
2: You're listening to the
0: ATP Tennis Radio Podcast. Available on iTunes, Spotify,
3: TuneIn, and ATPTour.com.
0: Well, as Wimbledon starts to be dismantled for another year, we've moved to a slightly quieter room. And I'm delighted to say we've now also been joined by the Australian radio and television commentator, Peter McCarto. Jill Krabus and Luciale are still here. So let's leave aside the two finalists and have a look back on whose stock has risen over this Wimbledon. And the obvious place to start, I suppose, is the two beaten semi-finalists, Yannick Zinner and Daniel Medvedev. Jill?
1: What's interesting about Zinner and Medvedev is we've spoken about how, or they have too, vocalised, how, you know, maybe grass isn't necessarily their their best. I mean, Medvedev got his first clay court title this year, too. It's not... Super comfortable moving, but has sort of they both downplayed their chances on the grass. And the fact that they were able to get to their first semifinal, I think, is great. I thought both of them had chances to potentially meet in the final, but I thought the way they were able to adjust to the surface, because it's one of the hardest adjustments, as we know, clay to grass, but the way they've been able to adjust and perform and compete, I, I think, has been
2: exceptional. Lucy,
0: last year, Sinner took Djokovic to five sets. This year, he was outclassed in all three.
2: Has he gone backwards? I don't think so. I was actually impressed with the improvements that he has made. I think he's worked hard in having more variety with his game and we've seen that with the slice backhand. We've seen him use the drop shot and being more comfortable coming forward because that was certainly something that wasn't the case. I know he obviously lost in three sets, so you can look at it on paper, that he did a worse job. But I, I thought I think he was pleased with how, how he played. I think he would have liked to have snuck that third set and then it could have been interesting. But I think he's making improvements. He's still so young as well. I mean...
0: The thing about his defeat to Altmaier in Roland Garros was that he
2: seemed lacking
0: an extra dimension. Do you think we saw the start of that here at Wimbledon?
2: Definitely. And I mean, it doesn't happen overnight. I think that's something that he has been working on for probably 12 months since Darren Cahill joined the team. That's something that they've looked to add. And similarly, the physical side, that's been another big issue for him. And he's had to work hard and have a a longer off-season, and the main focus has been on the physical side, trying not to break down, because we've obviously seen a lot of injuries. So, as I say, I think we forget how young he is. and I mean, he's still got plenty of time ahead of him, such such a talent.
0: Peter, do you have a feeling about whether Sinat or Medvedev will feel more satisfied at the end of their fortnight's work
2: probably
3: sinner in terms of there's been that thing about okay you've arrived you come in here as the eighth seed but uh, you know don't progress past quarterfinals at majors well now he's taken that next step and running into a player like Novak Djokovic with the way that Djokovic plays here will be you know such a a tall ask to be able to to do with the form that he's in at the moment so I think from that perspective, he'd probably feel a little more satisfied. I mean, Daniel Medvedev's just basically trolling the entire tennis community. Oh, I don't play well on clay. Oh, then goes out and wins Rome. Oh, I don't, you know, I'm not really comfortable. Don't play well. And then reaches a Wimbledon semi-final. So, you know, yes, for him, it's been a good tournament, but he'll be preparing himself for Flushing Meadows and the hardcourt season. He'll be very happy to have his feet planted on hardcourt ground.
0: I mean, I thought it was great to see Medvedev playing as well as he did on grass. I was just slightly taken aback at how much better Alcaraz was than Medvedev because I thought Medvedev's flat hitting might trouble Alcaraz on grass, but didn't.
1: Well, I think Alcaraz was absolutely outstanding. And I think Medvedev tried to change it up. He tried to do different things. There were maybe one or two games where he tried to change his return position. Then he started going big on the serve. Then he tried throwing in drop shots, tried coming into net. Okay, maybe he didn't do it as often or maybe as long as he should have tried. But Alcaraz had the answer for everything. And there were a few breaks in the third set back and forth. But I think that had more to do with Alcaraz maybe having just a little slip. I mean, the match to me was on his racket and I think he just got Medvedev in a very frustrated state trying to find his form almost that whole time.
0: If we go back around to the quarterfinals, I mean, the beaten quarterfinalist that stands out for me, I think for all of us is Chris Eubanks. I mean, he's taken this tournament by storm and by charm as well. The big question for me is, here's a guy who a year ago was ranked outside the top 150. What have we seen? both in Mallorca and at Wimbledon, that gives us reason to hope that he is now going to be a regular, at least in the top 30, as opposed to having had a wonderful run, but then goes back to a ranking of somewhere between 17 and 150.
2: I can't see that happening. I, I think yeah, he's he's gone through those tough times, the, the ups and downs, obviously went through college and then been playing challenges for a long time. The game that he's got is dangerous and he's very clear in terms of what he has to do and how to play. He's got a massive serve, so that gives you a huge advantage, but also huge forehand, which he fully committed to and happy to come forward. And, you know, I think there was a question mark in terms of how he would get on after winning Mallorca. I might I felt that he might slip up then. But with him then just running with that, I, I can see him having a, a brilliant summer and keep certainly keeping his ranking where it is.
1: I think a lot of it has to do with his confidence. I think he's always had that big game. And I, I totally agree with Lucy. This backup from the Mallorca title was huge to be able to get to the quarterfinals and on the big stage, which is a big deal. But to me, it's that confidence. He's had so many people around him telling him that he can do this with Coco Goff and her family, Osaka chiming in, Kleister's has chimed in with that support and those people in particular backing him you can't help but gain that confidence eventually when you have all those people telling you that you can do it and I think that had a lot to do with his performance and I think think it will continue, I mean like Lucy said he's got a big game
3: and he's getting into bigger tournaments as well and that you can play with house money a little bit because you're coming through and yes you might be Okay, challenger-level-wise and have some points to defend, but if you're immediately into 250s and 500s, and even if you're on the cusp of thousands, particularly playing in the US, there's a fair chance you might snaffle a wild card or two along the way, then you are banking that. So rather than it being just a short-term thing, you do get that that bounce when you do come through and and make that impact. As long as you wear matches. Of course, of course. But you still get that anyway, because you're not having to defend as many... Uh, defending all the points that you would have a challenger level.
0: Another beaten quarter finalist was Holger Runa. Now, I love the first set of his match against Alcaraz. It looked like two 10 year olds who were just having fun hitting balls on a tennis court. Clearly, Alcaraz is a level higher than Runa at the moment. But uh, has Runa's stock gone up?
2: I think so. I, I love watching Runa play. I think, you know, he, he was up there with Alcaraz. I think Alcaraz is further ahead just with. His game and his maturity and, and probably even physically as well. Runa did say that he, he woke up and didn't feel 100% going into that match. But I think he's making improvements all the time. I, I see those two right at the top of the game in years to come. I love his, his attitude. He, he, he needs to in some ways perhaps mature, but I think that that will happen.
0: And uh, Jill, you were picking Andre Rublev a week ago. Um, he <laughs> fell at the quarterfinal stage. No disgrace to fall to Novak Djokovic.
2: But you thought
1: Bublik was going to beat him.
0: I did. I thought, <laughs> and, and Bublik came very close. He took Rublev to five You're sets.
1: Right. I know. Yes, I know. I think I just, you know, my heart gets in the way with me sometimes because I tend to back people that I really want to see do well. I mean, Rublev is such a nice guy, and I think he's just a work. He's constantly working and wanting to improve and get better. And I, with that type of work ethic. I just want to see those guys do so well. And he did. I mean, he made his first quarterfinal on the grass, which is which is great. So there was another first. I think there were so many firsts in this event. So he's got to be proud of that. And of course, he comes up against Djokovic. And I mean, that's the toughest task, as we know here.
0: Is there a mental hurdle developing for Rublev at the quarterfinal stages of majors?
1: Um, I don't I think it depends who he faces. I mean, everyone I don't feel like the whole the whole draw and doesn't necessarily feel like they can do it against Djokovic, especially when you see all his numbers. So in that regard, I think potentially, because I think he had a chance at the US Open too, face Tiafo and I felt like maybe he thought that was an opening for him and that may might have overwhelmed him. We saw he get himself get very emotional at that stage, but he played a quarterfinal at the Australian Open, played Djokovic. Another quarterfinal hero played Djokovic. lost mean, a couple
0: to Medvedev. He
1: lost a couple to Medvedev. So, I mean, he's playing. It's not like he's not playing tough opponents, but it is a tough hurdle to get to get past.
0: who did well in the early rounds. Uh, three names got to the fourth round. Roman Safiulin, Daniela Galan, and Jerzy Lehechka.
2: They all had a brilliant tournament, didn't they? It was a shame for Lehechka that he had to pull out against Medvedev with the injury. Again, he's someone that I love watching play. I think he's so dynamic. He can play from the back of the court, can move forward. He's comfortable all over the court. And his strength as well. I mean, he moves incredibly well. And I think, you know, having Burdick in his corner, that that will certainly help him. So I think hopefully there'd be no major issues. I, th- I think it was just a, a blister in the end, which doesn't seem much, but when you've got one and you're trying to play full out and move around the court, it, it then it becomes very painful. Safiulin, I think it was great for him to, to get through as well, who, you know, such a good junior and it's, it's just taken him longer to break onto the scenes and, be playing at this sort of stage. He hits such a, a big ball, such a, a clean ball striker. So yeah, those two in particular I thought they had a, a brilliant tournament.
0: The metaphor I used at the beginning was whose stock has risen? Metaphor from Stocks and Shares, but I just feel that Lehetka his stock has risen more than Galan
3: and Safulin. Oh, yeah. I mean, the thing is for Safulin, following him during the grass court season, and he was, you know, not one that you would pick out immediately to say, let's make a run to the quarterfinals. But he grabbed that opportunity, had that win over Bautista Gut in the the opening round and then was able to just keep that form going and he just got on a bit of a run and then ran to Yannick Sinner and to be fair actually took a set off Yannick Sinner as well too so you know that's a little more meritorious the guy who's just on inside the World's Top 100 will get a nice rise out of that as Galan will too so you get that opportunity just to have a little bit of a ranking spike but then you've got to make sure you come back next year and defend those points
0: Shapovalov looked to be going well and then stumbled in the fourth round Sitsipath perhaps underperformed again. Brody did well, but was that a one-off off the back of home support? Any other names? That... I,
1: I mean, I think Bublik, who you mentioned, because he just, mm. I mean, he won a title and then came in and backed up his results too. I think that's definitely worth mentioning because we know how talented he is. And he was able to back up those results, I think. He was so emotionally sound for so long to get that title and to, to come here and face like That's a tough battle because he just faced Bu- uh, Rublev in the final. And then to have to face him again here on the bigger stage, is always tough mentally, I think. But I thought he performed excellent. We know, we, we've always known what he's capable of. And I think just having that mental strength so consistently for the last three weeks for him, I thought was
2: really great. I was actually impressed with Pass. I know, you know, maybe went out earlier than people thought. I thought Eubanks played an incredible match, but I thought Sitsipas played unbelievably well against Murray, the way that he hit the ball there. And we haven't really seen that for a while. And, you know, it'd be nice to see him because he started the year so well and he still won a lot of matches, but he had a dip. He struggled over the grass. And I agree with you with Bublik as well. Really impressed with. His mindset, and and then with that came good discipline in terms of his shot selection, and he and he got that spot on.
3: Matteo Berettini for me, uh, because we saw him early on in the grass court season when he lost his opening round match, was in tears. You know, am I going to be able to recapture the form that that has taken me to the top of the sport? And the answer to that is yeah. I mean, he he passed a guy in Sasha Zverev who has also, you know, has faced his own hurdles and is playing some pretty good tennis himself, managed to get through there, get through a guy like Alex Dimonor who's had a really good grass court season. So, you know, he ran into a red-hot Alcaraz but still managed to take the first set from him. So that's a, a gigantic step forward. And I guess the only thing is we're hanging holding to, is the fact that he can remain healthy for the second part of the year because uh he he can be a force to be reckoned with and and he showed that during the championships
0: yeah and we don't know whether that is just a a lack of belief that his body will hold up or whether there is actually a you know a problem there because his body has broken down so often Mm. in terms of the late finishes is that a problem for wimbledon or did we just happen to have a wimbledon where there were a lot of matches i mean one question that I find myself asking is has the shot clock actually lengthened matches rather than shortened them
3: I'll jump in on this one tennis tennis goes too long We, if we're not uh, really working that out at this particular point and it's not necessarily you know the in play sort of stuff like you ask about the serve clock and everything like that it's more the other stuff around it in terms of the time it takes to get on court. The time it takes we do the toss of the coin. Then we have the warm up. But then after the warm up we need to sit down warm-up for the, four the, minutes, Peter. Yes, but then we sit down. It starts to lengthen our matches, then we have our bathroom breaks at the end of sets. That lengthens lengthens the end of time there. It time it, it just keeps time keeps stretching out. So what would be regular, even regulation matches these days are still taking a long time with all the other stuff that goes on around it. So the host
0: broadcaster for the tournament in Vienna, the 500 tournament in October, used to put up on screen ball in play time and length of match. So length of match, match time as we know it, from the start to the finish, and the amount of time the ball was in play. And I mean, the ratio was always about one to eight. And, and that felt to me alarming. I would like to see some figures about what percentage Of a match time, the ball is actually in play. Because if we find that it's in play for less time than it was before, that then is a sign that maybe there is too much other stuff going on when the ball is out of play that sports like football, as in soccer, just would never tolerate because the audience will get bored.
3: Yeah, and that's the thing. So there's been talk about the starting time on center and the number one court, maybe bringing that uh, you know forward a little bit, which will help. With that, uh, then you've the thing is, that was all for week one, the first nine or ten days. And then after that, it's kind of fallen off a cliff because there have been two matches scheduled as opposed to three. So that seems to have brought things back on a bit more of an even keel. So, yeah, it's something we've got to look at in terms of a sport, and not just here, obviously, but across the world. So, Lucy,
0: do you think next year we're going to have court one starting at uh, 12.30 and centre court at one, half an hour earlier
2: than this year? I do think there will have to be some adjustments because... Yeah, the late finishes and then I think with what was difficult for the player was, players was the fact that they didn't get to finish the match and then suddenly they've got to come back the next day and, and then obviously that has a, a real impact on perhaps the, the rest of their tournament. So definitely that will be something that they'll need to look at and maybe three and a half minute warm-ups. Any other...
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, we had, and To be fair, we did have rain which caused a bit of havoc as well in terms of and sometimes matches would be taken from outside courts and put onto a, a roofed stadium court to try and finish it off as well so that also had a, a contribution but three and a half minutes sounds good to me
0: it's been a good year for the stories I mean men's and women's Switzerland was obviously a very good story in the women's but I, I also feel that it's a British story but Liam Brody I mean he was almost written off in in the British tennis scene and He's come good through sheer hard work.
2: Well, he has. I mean, he's he's gone through it. There's been ups and downs. I think he'll fully admit that there's maybe been times where he hasn't been as professional as he could. But to see him being able to step out on this type of stage, it was really interesting. The fact that he said, you know, when he was in the final of the juniors and a set and a break up and, and didn't close it out, that that almost haunted him. I mean, that was years ago. So now for him to be able to step up, have that win against Kasparud was was brilliant. And And for him to, you know, put himself in that position, I think... It just shows that if if you do continue to keep believing, work hard, but in the right way as well, then you can, you at the latter stages of your career, come through.
3: One thing that we haven't mentioned, we didn't mention in the previous podcast, was actually Wimbledon getting the opportunity to say goodbye to Roger Federer. It happened on early in the tournament. And it was very much, very Wimbledon in terms of it being quite understated, where he just turned up. In the royal box, it was announced that he was he was there. He had his family there. He, he had a cast, almost a cast of thousands, but uh, to actually have the opportunity. As I'm sure a lot of tournaments would be wanting, clamoring to get Roger to come and visit just to wave and say goodbye. And the the sustained applause that he had as well. Yeah, do you uh, not want to cut
0: that down because of the length of matches? I mean, six and a half minutes of
3: applause (laughs) he had.
0: That's far too long, Peter. Well,
3: we're not saying goodbye to him. uh, We're not saying goodbye to him at every single event. And that happened well before the starting time of the match to walk on. That was at 20 past one. The match started at half past one. And he was seated and everyone was ready by then.
0: OK, we'll we'll rest our case on that one. Um, a quick word about doubles. Not so much who did well and who didn't. But if you look at the top eight in the doubles race to uh, uh, the ATP finals in Turin, there are players from the Netherlands, Great Britain, Spain, Argentina, Croatia, USA, India, Australia, Mexico, France, Poland and Belgium. I mean, that's fantastic as a spread.
1: I think that represents tennis perfectly. I mean, we're a very international sport. I love that. I love that stat that you just said, because I think it just shows all of us coming together. And to me, that's what sport is about. All of us coming together, competing, playing with each other, people coming together in doubles in particular. I think I I love it. I think that's an unbelievable representation.
2: And I think it just puts a spotlight on it as well, because you've got so many different countries and they're obviously going to follow those players as well. So, you know, it's only going to grow it and, and do it good. So it's a real positive. That's the voice of Lucy Arle. My thanks
0: to her, along with Jill Kravis and Peter Mercato. And that's it from Wimbledon 2023, the 136th Championships. I'm Chris Bowers and I'll be back next weekend, joined by my fellow commentator, Candy Reid, as well as the Wimbledon champions, Wesley Koolhoff and Neil Skupski, to talk about the doubles game in more depth how we should promote it, tips for club players, Wes and Neil's thoughts on the greatest doubles pairs of all time and much, much more. Plus, we'll also hear from the legendary coach and master doubles tactician, Louis Caillet. But that's it from another Wimbledon. Outside, the light is fading, the ground staff are covering the courts and this week they'll get to work on the job of ensuring the lawns of tennis's oldest tournament are in perfect shape for the 2024 championships in 50 weeks' time. So we draw down the curtain on another Wimbledon at which history has been made. Carlos Alcaraz's second Grand Slam title and first at Wimbledon. Thanks for being with us. Join us next week. And meanwhile, enjoy the tennis.